We are who we are because of what God has graciously done. And now that we are who he has made us to be, we want to begin responding in ways that please and glorify the Lord. We obey, we worship, we serve. Not to add to God's redemptive work. These people are already free. But to respond to it. That's the rhythm. That's the shape. And if you mess with this shape, you completely destroy the concept and beauty of biblical faith. If you put the obedience first, if you were to say, obey and you will be my people, that's legalism. But if you say, you are my people, live however you like, that's blasphemy and ingratitude. That's antinomianism and unfaith. Biblical faith begins with who God is and how God acts with respect to our redemption. And then it begins to talk about response, obedience, worship, gratitude, and service. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There is a certain shape and a certain rhythm to biblical faith, Old Testament and New It's not just about having the right elements there. It's about putting them in the right order and holding them in the right relationship to one another. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 19. You could probably give this entire chapter the heading, Preparing to Meet with God. The Israelites have arrived at Mount Sinai after about three months of travel, and they will stay now at Mount Sinai for the better part of a year. And we can miss that sort of detail as we read through the Bible. So let's be careful to notice here that the setting will not change now for the next 70 pages in my Bible. Anyway, everything that happens in your Bible from Exodus 19.2 through Numbers 10.11 happens right here as the people encamp at Mount Sinai. This is one of those densely significant seasons in the biblical timeline. The Bible can skip hundreds of years between verses because nothing much was going on. Or alternatively, it can slow down and tell the story of 10 months of time over the course of 58 chapters. And that's what we're seeing here. This is an incredibly important moment. And in chapter 19 we observe some of the build-up to this incredibly important moment. You don't just waltz into the presence of the three times holy God. There is some preparation to be done. There's some consecration to be undertaken. There's some communication to be received and acted upon. And that is what is going on in this chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. On the third new month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession 
among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verses 3 to 6 narrate the first of Moses' seven ascents up Mount Sinai. In this first one, he is told to remind the people of Israel of all that God has done in order to redeem them. He is to preach the gospel to them, we might say. Then, on the basis of what God has already done, he is to invite them to respond to God's gracious work on their behalf by obeying his voice and keeping his covenant. That's the now, therefore, if clause that you see at the beginning of verse 5. It would be hard to think of another three-word clause that surpasses this one in terms of its theological importance. Now, therefore, if. The now, of course, is the moment of decision and commitment. The therefore is the basis upon which this decision and commitment ought to be made, the finished work of God in purchasing and effecting their redemption. And then the if spells out the appropriate response to all that God has done on their behalf. J. Alec Machir is very helpful here, particularly with respect to that potentially troubling word, if. He says, the significant if with which verse 5 opens relates not to covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. Status comes by the acts of God. Enjoyment by the responsive commitment of obedience. Obedience is not our part in a two-sided bargain, but our grateful response to what the Lord has unilaterally decided and done. Closed quote. That is the shape and essence of biblical faith, Old Testament and New. We are who we are because of what God has graciously done. And now that we are who he has made us to be, we want to begin responding in ways that please and glorify the Lord. We obey, we worship, we serve, not to add to God's redemptive work. These people are already free, but to respond to it. That's the rhythm. That's the shape. And if you mess with this shape, you completely destroy the concept and beauty of biblical faith. If you put the obedience first, if you were to say, obey and you will be my people, that's legalism. But if you say, you are my people, live however you like, that's blasphemy and ingratitude. That's antinomianism and unfaith. Biblical faith begins with who God is and how God acts with respect to our redemption. And then it begins to talk about response, obedience, worship, gratitude, and service. So those are the basic terms that God tells Moses to relate to the people. The God who saves us now invites us into a covenant based upon careful obedience, reverent worship, universal service, and unimaginable joy. Do you wish to enter into such an arrangement? That is the question that Moses is given to convey. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because I really think that is a massively important issue. In fact, I would argue that getting this wrong leads to more trouble than just about any other issue I can think of. All biblical religion starts with grace, 
not just New Testament religion, but Old Testament too. And then it moves into response, worship, service, and gratitude. Unpack that a little bit for us, because as I said, getting this one wrong leads to all kinds of confusion and unhappiness. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the balance and relationship between grace and works is probably one of the most, if not the most, important questions in all of biblical religion. Biblical religion begins with the unwarranted grace of God. He goes first. He sets people free, not because they're better or more deserving than anyone else, and not because they've already done most of the heavy lifting, and then he comes along and does the last little bit for them. No, God sets people free. He redeems them because he loves them. He redeems them because he is a merciful and gracious God. And then and only then does he begin to lay out for them how they should live and respond as his people. So it's grace first, then followed by worship, gratitude, service, and obedience. All right. Now, in the program audio, you talked about how it's common for people to get this wrong in two different directions. You talked about legalism on the one hand, and then antinomianism on the other. Did did I say that right? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. All right. So I can say it, but I'm not really sure what that is. And I imagine some of our listeners may be in the same boat. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. Antinomianism literally means opposed to lawism. So it has to do with a Christian person's attitude toward the law. A New Testament Christian does not believe that they can be saved by keeping the law. Anyone who does believe that obviously needs to go back and read the Old Testament again. The Jews received the gift of the law, but it didn't help them very much because they always ended up as bad or even worse than the people around them who didn't have the law. So the law can't save us because our hearts are broken. The law is only helpful to people who want to keep it or who are capable of keeping it. But humans are more broken than that. There are people who want to keep the law but find out that they can't. Their lusts are just too strong. So we think of King David, for example. And then there are other people who hate the law and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Regardless, the Old Testament makes it very clear that no one keeps the law. No one is righteous before God in terms of the law. So the law can't save us. And of course, that's why the person and work of Jesus is such very good news. He did for us what we can't do for ourselves. He kept the whole law for his people, fulfilling and satisfying our obligation before God and purchasing for us all the promised blessings of God. And he died on the cross to erase the record of our transgressions. That's the gospel. And we're saved by believing in that, and by trusting in the good work that Jesus did on our behalf. But, and it's an important but, that doesn't mean that the law is bad. The message of the Old Testament is not that the law is bad. The message of the Old Testament is that we are bad, and that while the law could restrain us, it could not redeem us. It couldn't change us. So the law isn't bad. It just wasn't good enough. So to return to your question, Antinomianism is basically when you think that the law doesn't matter, when you think there's no role for it, when you think that the law is is bad. Antinomianism has to do with a person who thinks, because I'm saved by grace, I don't need to have anything to do with the law. There's nothing that the law can do to help me. That's not true. That's a dangerous error. The Apostle Paul said, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law helps saved people understand the will of God and to live in a way that pleases God and shows love and respect to other people. 
All right. So legalism is bad because that's believing we can be saved by keeping all the rules. Mm -hmm. And antinomianism is bad because that's about believing that there aren't any rules. Is that it? Yeah. Legalism is making too much of the law. Antinomianism is making too little of the law. And real Christianity, real biblical religion is about steering the path between. And it's on that path where we rest in the grace of God toward us in Christ and where we use the law to guide our feet in the way of righteousness, peace, and love. All right. Well, that's really helpful and sets us up very well to understand the setup in Exodus 19 for arguably the most important chapter in the Old Testament, Exodus 20. Yeah. Without Exodus chapter 19 and without the opening words of Exodus 20, The Bible would feel like a very different book indeed. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. We're in. We've seen God. We know who he is. We trust what he will say. He is good. Therefore, his word will be for our good. Notice that they agree to obey before they've even heard all the words that God will give. That is faith. Faith is trusting in who God is and therefore being willing to accept and obey whatever God says. Faith always comes before you have all the details. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. So the people agree, and Moses carries their agreement back up the mountain to God. This is the second ascent of Moses. We pick up the story in the second half of verse 8. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. All right, so Moses goes down the mountain again, this time to tell the people how to prepare for the coming theophany. Theophany means appearance of God. God is going to show up tangibly and transformatively in three days. And so the people need to prepare. First of all, the people need to be informed that not everyone will be going all the way up the mountain. The people will be invited to the foot of the mountain so that they can hear the gist of what is going on, but no further. There can be no casual or accidental contact with the mountain while the presence of God is being manifest. Of course, scholars note here how similar this is to the rules that will come to be in place around the tabernacle and then later the temple. Only the high priest, and that only once a year, can go all the way into the Holy of Holies. And then the priests, they can go in a certain distance. And then the regular people can go in a certain distance. And then, of course, there is the outer court of the Gentiles. Same basic idea here. And same 
basic message here. There is a gap between God and people that has not yet been fully dealt with. We won't see the way clear until the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus dies, the veil in the temple was torn in two. But for now, a safe distance must be maintained between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people. God also commands that the people wash their clothes. Clothes in the Bible were often symbols for the outer character. Again, the idea here is that one doesn't simply march into the presence of God. One deals with one's dirt. One examines his own character and makes appropriate preparation. This physical act was no doubt intended to stimulate a more personal and moral reflection. The command to abstain from sex serves a similar purpose. It wasn't because sex was bad. It was because you wanted to be focused and you wanted to spend time in sober reflection before you met the Lord. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about a two to three day abstention from marital intercourse in order to give oneself to focused prayer. That was the purpose of both of these unusual prescriptions. The Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarnas is here. The three days of preparation and self-restraint allow time for sober reflection so that acceptance of the covenant can be considered an undoubted act of free will, closed quote. Now, regardless of how you want to define free will, the point is that as eager as the people indicated that they were, God calls for an extended period of sober reflection before undertaking the privileges and commitments of the covenant. That is something we would do well to take note of. We pick up the story in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. These verses recount the third ascent and descent of Moses. In verse 20, God comes down and calls Moses up. He then tells Moses to go down and further warn and restrain the people against accidental or intentional approach. Moses at first doesn't seem to think that such a warning is necessary. He he tells God that I've already put such restrictions in place. But in verse 24, God says to Moses, 
go down and repeat the instructions and then come back up, bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up. So Moses went down again to reiterate those instructions. Now, what are we to make of this? Obviously, God is concerned to emphasize and double emphasize here the barrier that exists between the people and himself. And he expresses an awareness here that this barrier will seem less significant than it is to the people in general and to the priests in particular. Now, of course, we want to stop here and ask, who are these priests? The priesthood, as we know it, isn't instituted until after the incident with the golden calf. You'll remember that the Levites stand with Moses against the people in their idolatry, and as a result, they are given the unique privileges of the priesthood. But prior to that, it appears that the firstborn sons of every family functioned as the priesthood. Numbers 3 states that explicitly. God says to Moses, this is Numbers 3, 12 to 13, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beasts. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Close quote. So the firstborn sons belong to God as designated servants in light of the Exodus. However, because it appears the firstborn sons were not adequately committed or singular in their devotion, and because the Levites took a courageous and faithful stand with Moses against idolatry, that general privilege for now will be restricted to the Levites. The people weren't ready for a general priesthood at this point in the story, which of course is why it is such a big deal when the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles trusting in Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is saying that what was begun in Exodus 19 that was later deferred after the incident of the golden calf is now fully and gloriously realized in the church because of the greater graces and gifts of the New Testament. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. For now, we just want to see that this initial priesthood, the firstborn sons, required a special reminder that they were not to presume upon the presence of God, merely on the basis of birthright. Position without piety and preparation means nothing. That's the point. And Moses is sent back down the mountain to make that point. So, Moses went down to the people and told them. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, there is an awful lot of movement in the latter part of this story. Moses is going up and coming down. The young men serving as priests are going up, and then they're moving back. The people in general are moving forward, but not too close. <laughs> Am I right in assuming that there is a point to all this movement? Yeah, absolutely. The, the story seems to be highlighting the essential distance between God and human beings. He is up there, and we are down here. 
The essential dynamic of worship then is that a mediator creates a bridge so that words can go from God down to the people and praise can go from the people back up to God. In this story, Moses is that mediator. But of course, in the New Testament, Christ is the mediator. He brings us the word of God and through him we offer our praise and prayer. Now, that's true, but there's also a sense that all Christians are mediators in a sense, too, right? I mean, the New Testament says that we are all priests, not just the pastors and the preachers. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus is our great high priest. But then also, as his followers, we, too, play that role in a lesser sense. We talk to God on behalf of people, and we talk to people on behalf of God. Yeah, that is awesome. Amen to that. I can't wait to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune into Life 100.3 next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.